kids in the pandemic, you know, missing out on such important learning time and you want them to focus on the skills that they need. I think this is a skill that they need. Like, I think the utilizing AI and knowing the proper place for it is important. I think it's circumventing learning more than supporting it. If kids like you don't you don't give a first grader a calculator to figure out basic addition. And I think that's the important distinction. Welcome to The Last Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, let's welcome back Joe Garvey. Joe, welcome Hi, back Joe. to the show. Hey, guys. How's it going? Doing well, Joe. Are you ready to fact check today? Oh, I'm so ready. How often, by the way, I've been meaning to ask you this, do you use ChatGPT to write your research for the show? Honest question. So I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I would say every second of every day. Do you really I'm have it open it. the whole time? No, I don't. Yeah. I should, though. I feel like it would be a good resource. We don't have a rule against it. We don't block it. Yeah, then why not? I should. I mean, I, it would actually, uh, I think it would be helpful. Well, we'll see. I've never once used it except for, for fun. Well, I, I think we should have an experiment where for the next show, we, we take one thing and bring it to the show that ChatGPT generated and see if anybody could notice. But you have to okay. you have to say it word for word, which may give things away. I think if you're reading off of something, that may that may give it away. Although Joe, you read the, straight off of the paper for the the sort of teasers for each segment, so you could slip it in. Well, okay. Before I get to the stories, just a couple quick announcements. We have okay. a new episode of Sweat the Technique with Dan Abrahams, who's a sports psychologist, and he coaches like Premier League teams, professional golfers, et cetera, just on like how to perform well. And it was a really cool conversation where we talked about how to deal with teams like your New York Jets, Joe, that are always losing and how to like <laughs> coach people through. Not for long, Rob. Yeah, we'll see. Um, coaching people through. Uh, how to, you know, despondent teams, despondent coaches who are trying to get themselves out of a hole, but also coaching teams and coaches who are used to winning, like my Buffalo Bills. And, you know, just saying, like, how do you not get overconfident, et cetera. So I think it's the kind of thing that even if you're not into sports, you'll be into because it's we really try to generalize it to, to life in general. Uh, we also have a new episode of our on our Daisy Crime YouTube. So this is our Indian True Crime podcast. They have really popular YouTube channel. And this week's mystery is the Kolkata House of Horrors episode. This is a really creepy story. It's going to be released at 8 a.m. Eastern time on Wednesday. So check that out at the Daisy Crime YouTube page. That's D-E-S-I, Crime YouTube. Well, okay, let's get to our stories. So the Arkansas Learn Act, uh, and I say Arkansas like a real New Yorker, uh, it's one of the most sweeping pieces of uh, education legislation to pass in the past decade, maybe in my entire lifetime. We'll unpack that. We'll also talk about the gentrifying economy. How should we feel about the race to create more and more luxury experiences for customers? But first, let's talk about artificial intelligence and chat GPT in the classroom. I think this chat GPT as a technology is incredible and exciting, but at the same time, it's like opening a Pandora's box. A monumental shift in technology that's both mind-blowing and on some level, concerning. Its ability to mimic human language and provide analysis has unintentionally made it a perfect tool to use in classrooms. This technology is still so new. It comes with plenty of unknowns and it raises some very big questions about plagiarism and cheating. 
The artificial intelligence is sort of like a teenager right now. It's exciting to see the teenager like get its footing, but it's also not there yet and we can't trust it. All right, Joe, we've covered this before. Ricky, how many times have we talked about ChatGPT now? I don't know, maybe four times on this show? Oh, I was going to say like, like twice, that. but... You think so? I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm maybe confusing Citizen Stewart, where I probably talk about it every week. Yeah, twice. Yeah. So the reason why we keep coming back to this is it's such a fast developing story. Like a year ago, we didn't, I didn't know what this thing was. I don't even know if it existed a year ago. Probably not. And now, as we'll talk about, Joe... People are using this thing. Like, it's almost unprecedented how fast people are adopting this. Yeah, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether it's going to have a positive or negative impact on society, especially as it pertains to education. You know, one of the most pressing concerns is whether ChatGPT will be used for cheating or if it'll, if it'll actually benefit students and teachers by becoming a useful tool in the classroom. Now, much of the media coverage has focused on the negative side. But there's a new survey out from the polling firm Impact Research and the Walton Family Foundation, which paints a bit more of a positive picture. The group asked over 1,000 K-12 teachers and over 1,000 students between the ages of 12 and 17 about their experiences with ChatGPT, and the results are pretty interesting. Apparently, more than half of teachers have reported using ChatGPT, and even a third of students have used it for schoolwork. Of those who've used it, 88% of teachers and 79% of students say it's had a positive impact. The survey also found that teachers are four times more likely to have allowed students to use ChatGPT than caught them using it without their permission. And two-thirds of students and three-quarters of teachers agree that integrating ChatGPT for schools will be important for the future. Now, uh, before we dive into this, uh, we want to flag right at the outset that the Walton Family Foundation funds our work here at Lost Debate. So that's just an important journalistic disclosure we want to make before we continue. Uh, But with that being said, Ravi, what do you make of these survey results? Well, I think it's important to note that the the people in schools are more optimistic about this technology than the media writ large, where, you know, as we've covered, there has been one doomsaying essay about the end of this and the end of that uh, over the past few months. There are also school districts have been way more pessimistic generally about this. LAUSD, New York City, DOE, Seattle, Oakland have all blocked chat GPT in some form at some time. And so on the one hand, you've got journal, you know, journalistic institutions, which they're not a monolith. There have been some positive essays, even in the same publication. So like in one Atlantic essay, they may be decrying the impact of chat GPT and another one, they may be talking about its benefits. So I don't want to oversimplify this, but by and large, you've got a dichotomy between what's happening within classrooms and then what's happening in the bureaucracies of some of these school districts and what's happening in newsrooms. And I think that's fascinating. I also think it's fascinating, Ricky, that teachers are using this more than students, which is something that I'm not sure most people predicted at the outset of this debate. Yeah, definitely. But I would also say that this is, um, in terms of the 10%, only 10% have caught them for cheating. Like, I'm not that interested in that statistic because I would imagine that it's must be it must be much higher of like the percentage of teachers who've actually received some sort of cheating essay. I would I don't know if I'd be able to discern if someone had cheated. So this is the percent right. that's just been caught. And this is also just very early days. So I would say I'm a I I 
imagine that these numbers are going to get worse. Um, one thing actually, just coincidentally yesterday, the New York Post did this contest for um, high school students to submit articles that they've written about like either an opinion piece or a journalistic piece. And so I went through all the submissions yesterday and I would say the number one most popular topic that these kids chose to report on was AI and chat GPT, which was really interesting to me. Like this was by far, I would say the other popular ones are maybe like social media and vaping and like, but by far AI and almost all of them are a little bit alarmist in it and mm -hmm. like brought up anecdotes of saying like, I, I pulled this one quote from this kid. Um, these are all New York city area kids. He said in his AP language class, he overheard a conversation where someone said, quote, I didn't even start my essay. essay. I'll probably use chat GPT. So mm. <laughs> apparently this is actually happening yeah. in, in, in classrooms. And so I think that even though maybe we could just kind of brush it off and say, Oh, only 10% caught their students for cheating. I think this is going to become a larger issue and it'll also be become harder and harder to detect. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's really hard with this kind of data to find out about cheating, right? Because you talk about how many how many people say they caught somebody and then you ask the students whether they've cheated, which is kind of useless. <laughs> like, asking yeah. them, like they're not going to self-report on that. You need something sophisticated like what Todd Rose did at Populous to try to figure out the cheating part of this. But um, we had a chance actually to talk to Romy Drucker, who's the K-12 Ed Policy Director over at the Walton Family Foundation that commissioned this research. And uh, she generally... It, you know, basically what they wanted to do is they wanted to say, look, like this is a non-ideological debate right now and one in which a lot of claims are being made about what teachers and students want. But what they wanted to basically find out was what's actually happening in the classroom. And uh, she has a sense that like schools and regulators are going to have to catch up really fast to what's happening in classrooms. There needs to be, you know, appropriate ethical and regulatory guidelines for use. Um, and as I said, there should be more support for teachers, not less in thinking about how to use this tool. But I do think, again, that as we think about the future of school and learning, um, technology is going to play an important role in that. Generative AI supports that can meet students where they are, be adaptive and responsive to students' needs, I think, are going to be um, part of this. And so, um, you know, teachers and students are, are, are signaling that they feel the same way, that making education relevant and accelerating learning depends on being able to better utilize these tools and new solutions that are under development as well. And so, Ricky, one stat that's worth keeping in mind here is that the typical teacher, this is from EdWeek, uh, data from EdWeek, the typical teacher works 54 hours per week, 25 hours of which is spent teaching students. So to the extent that this tool can help teachers more efficiently build lesson plans and develop their curriculum and maybe cut down on those hours spent outside of the classroom, that's great. And honestly, like plagiarism concerns, not an issue for me when it comes to teachers. Like I, I, I almost would want to encourage teachers and I know plagiarism is not the right word necessarily here, but basically utilizing any external resource possible because originality to me is less important than effectiveness in the classroom. Yeah. I'm just a little bit like maybe in the higher level classes, you'd like a little bit of personality. And like, if you're, if you have boring, dense topics, like the, the things that I remember from school are like the times when my teacher was creative and exciting and different. And I, I hope that doesn't 
like if you have a pre-ready-made chat GPT made lesson plan, I hope that doesn't really disincentivize people from thinking of the the fun and exciting and uh, memorable analogy or activity. But, you know, I think it's it's interesting to hear from teachers themselves about how they're using this technology. Um, there's a teacher, Tyler Tarver from um, Arkansas, who was interviewed about it. You could take your lesson and then you could just start using chat, like chat GPT, toss it in there and be like, hey, take this and pull out the activity that I'm doing and list the activity, the objective, the standard, and then uh, future reflections on it. And it can build that out for you. And I'm not saying like, hey, I'm just gonna hand off all my work to chat GPT, write all my lesson plans. It, it could do that. However, you know your class better than any computer program. So you know what's gonna resonate with them. <clears throat> you know what's gonna help them learn better because you know your class. And so it seems like Tyler is saying basically what you're saying, Ricky, which is, hey, like this can help, but there still is that magic of being a teacher, knowing yeah. your students, having a personality. Yeah. And uh, and so, and there was this really great column from Kevin Roos in the New York Times. He's their media columnist. And he kind of goes through, he interviewed a bunch of educators about how they're using it. And I think these anecdotes are really important because given that this is such a fast moving issue, like just hearing from people about how they're using it is as helpful as some of the data that Impact mm -hmm. Research put together, for example. So you've got Gina Parnaby, uh, who's at Marist School. She's at the English department. She says that if our mindset approaching this is that we just want to build a better mousetrap to catch kids cheating, she just thinks that's the wrong approach. Uh, you have Carrie Shields, who's a teacher in Oregon, uh, who encourages students to use chat GPT to create outlines for essays. Uh, and then put their laptops away and write their essays longhand. Now that's interesting. I, we could quibble with that decision. I would I would almost want the outline to be without ChatGPT, but yeah, I think it's needless to say, like teachers are starting to get creative about when to turn the faucet on and off as it you know with respect to this technology, which makes it concerning to me that certain districts are outright banning it before they learn about these uses, give give teachers enough time to figure out like, hey, are there ethical uses? Can schools constrain this? I'd rather kids that are developing important writing skills not be the guinea pigs for that though. I'd rather err on the side of caution and um, not like allow another cohort of kids who have already had the learning issues with the pandemic just not develop important skills. And I would say creating an outline for an essay is I agree, arguably more important than than anything because you need to learn like a logical structure first. And if a computer is just making that for you, I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm really concerned about this. I think I don't think an outright ban is a smart idea. Um because I think that like in the same way that I was taught like typing when I was in school and stuff, like I was taught like important technological skills that I would need. And this could be, I mean, there could be a use case for doing like a, like a technology sort of uh, class in, in high school level or saying once you reach this level, then you can use this as, as a tool. But um, I would say these, these, tools that are used to find out whether someone has um, used chat GPT um, that you can upload essays to. I think that's going to be the future uh, in the same way that every, every essay that I submitted in high school, I had to put into some, I can't remember the website, but some website yeah. that would analyze if it was plagiarized from anywhere. And like, I don't think that's like a mousetrap sort of thing. That's just a very right. fundamental academic honesty thing. And so I have absolutely no issue whatsoever with teachers always uploading this. I mean, 
I don't, I don't really see the case for not, or like at least having a grade where you say, okay, you can use this as a tool now, or even having a class specifically about using it as a tool. Yeah. I think like, you know, there's something you said earlier in that comment that I want to focus on, which is, you know, the kids in the pandemic, you know, missing out on such important learning time and you want them to focus on the skills that they need. I think this is a skill that they need. Like, I think the utilizing AI and knowing the proper place for it is important. Yeah, and but I- also knowing how to like write or create a logical argument. And it's not just about putting like words on a piece of paper. Like I think that if they're not developing these skills because teachers don't know or school districts don't know that they're just circumventing everything, then I think that they're learning even less than they already have been. Like that's even, that's compounding their learning loss. Yeah, I think of it as almost like Microsoft Excel. Like people use the the calculator analogy too, right? And actually this is a good opportunity to go back to Rumi who made this point. So I was I was pushing her on, on similar lines and she mentioned the calculator as an analogy here. What do you think happened when the calculator was introduced into schools? Um, and you probably were around when, you know, we both were in in some in some in some classroom context when Wikipedia was introduced. And I think, you know, new tools are always going to raise questions about how we use them. And also, I think the most important thing is that we come together around the fact that the pandemic, you know, erased two decades of progress in literacy and math. And the only question we should be asking ourselves, you know, as committed adults who care about students is, are there tools out there that can be supporting learning? And if so, how do we figure out how to work together to to get those tools into the hands of teachers and students? I think it's circumventing learning more than supporting it. If kids like you don't you don't give a first grader a calculator to figure out basic addition. And I think that's the important distinction is we've figured out a way to make sure that kids develop fundamental, basic numerical skills first. And then like, you know, when you're in high school, you're not multiplying everything out if you're in calculus. I think that's by and large how most teachers think about this and which is why I'm skeptical of outright bans. Right? Most most educators if you look at all these quotes from all these articles, most educators are not saying, "All right, just let the kids run free on ChatGPT." What they're saying is, "Hey, I think it has a place in the classroom." And most educators are saying, "I think it has a limited place in the classroom." And calculators, for example, have more than an unlimited place as do spreadsheets and things like that. Essentially, once you develop basic number sense and understand computation, then you move on to those other tools. I mean, and that's in a good school. I mean, in, in bad schools, they they move on faster than others. My problem with the, yeah. uh, the other side of this debate though, Ricky, is that that's where most educators are. Districts are just, if they outright ban it, they, they prevent educators from having a nuanced role for these tools in the classroom. You just straight up can't use that. I think that's problematic. Well, I'd rather see different districts take different approaches when this is still like developing. And, and I would also say though, like on the calculator front too, like two plus two is four and writing a good essay is way more subjective. And I, I mean, even as someone who is a journalist now, I feel like I've learned considerably and I read stuff that I was writing just like two, a year and a half ago at the New York Post. And I'm like, oh, I would have written that sentence entirely differently. Like there's, it's a way more subjective field. There's like your creativity only comes out when you actually do the craft and do the work. And I think it, when you're in K to 12, that's still, or even in college, that's, 
in my view, that's still too early to be allowed and enabled to just put that off to a, a software. I mean, you're never going to, it's, it's crazy to me when I read back my writing just from recent time and I'm like, or even the beginning chapters of my book, I'm like, Oh wow. I, I think I've actually become a better writer since I wrote the first chapter of my book as I'm still working on the manuscript. Like I, I'm, I'm worried that the younger kids are when they start to do this, the, the worse their long-term writing skills and actually creative writing skills will become. Yeah. But I think like writing is a means to an end. It's a means towards communicating ideas. Yeah. Cause I think like, for instance, cursive is a means to an end. Right. And then when we got computers, we don't need cursive anymore. It's kind of a relic. And just like, I think of. So writing is a relic now. Well, I think like, well, I think cursive writing is a relic. And I think it's possible that in certain places, just like, you know, doing architecture, for example. Like if you're an architect today and you don't utilize computers to model out, like I have a friend who you know designed stadiums and bridges in Germany, for example. If she didn't utilize computers, she'd be irrelevant in the field of architecture. Now, if she w- existed 200 years ago, what it meant to be an architect was very different. And so I think as a writer now, there are always going to be rules of the game, right? Like there's always going to be a different set of rules if you're like developing something strictly artistically, like a novel. And the same is true of a painting. Like if you generate a painting using, you know, a computer, et cetera, people have, we've long had the ability to to use computers to create art. Uh, You know, basically your entire lifetime, most of my lifetime, we've been able to handle that debate. Like what is, like how do we recognize the talents of people innately versus like in the professional setting. Like if you're a lawyer writing a brief to a judge and you don't utilize AI 20 years from now, you'll probably be committing malpractice. And I think that's just something we need to catch up with. And like the idea of like the artistic purity of the well-crafted argument in your legal brief is going to be irrelevant to a client who's just like, hey, I want to win my case. I don't think that, I mean, you still need to have thought through the formation of your argument if you're going to like have any sort of like verbal back and forth with an opposing counsel though. Like I think that you run the risk of just short circuiting, going through the logic in your own mind if you just go straight to the chat GPT thing and you're going to be flat footed. But anyways, perhaps we disagree on this one. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm excited that you are for Ricky the government stepping in and preventing kids from using this technology. I, am, uh, I, I just am, want to note I that for our audience. Localized I just want to note that for our audience. school boards experimenting. I am, I am a federalist at heart. What can I say? Can I use still use it for research or is that off the table? Use it for research? Well, I, the thing is, <laughs> for our audience's sake, we just need to know when, when we're, I don't know, plagiarism is the right word. We just want to make sure that anything we represent as our own is our own. Uh, and not well, the I'll hold it computer. off for now. Okay. My editor didn't like my idea of letting AI write an article about AI mm. in the post. I mean, so really many people days. are doing stuff like this too. Like the I first... know, no, no, it was really early days. It yeah. was like right in the beginning of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm done no, with those there's... articles at this point. You know, they're like, let me ask ChatGPT. Let's move on to some developments in Arkansas. Last week, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed the LEARNS Act into law, which is a 145-page omnibus education bill that touches on everything from content prohibitions to teacher pay. Now, it would take me the rest of this episode to go through everything in this bill, so I'll give you guys a list of some of the big ticket items here. 
The law establishes a voucher program that provides up to 90% of the annual per student public school funding rate to be used towards private schools. It raises the state's minimum teacher salary from $36,000 to $50,000. It allows the education secretary to review Department of Education rules, policies, materials, and communications, and amend or annul those that promote, quote, indoctrination or critical race theory. It doubles the state repayment of federal student loans from $3,000 to $6,000 per year for up to three years for those teaching in subject areas designated as having critical teacher shortage. Uh, It creates new standards for literacy, preventing students who fail to meet the state's requirements from advancing from the third grade. It amends graduation criteria, including requiring students to complete 75 hours of community service in order to graduate high school. And lastly, it mandates that public schools develop a comprehensive school safety assessment and work with local police to improve safety. Now, that is a lot of information to take in. But, Robbie, what, what do you make of, out of uh, I think all this? This is probably the most significant piece of state-level legislation on education that I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah. And it's interesting because so much of the press on this has to do with some of the least impactful parts of this, like the critical race theory point, which is irrelevant to me because that that's basically a ready doctrine in Arkansas. And you got to expect that's going to be baked in in any red state at this point. What I found interesting is that there, there are elements of this plan, which I have questions around implementation and funding, which we can, we can end on, but there are elements of this plan, if implemented, that are really combining some of the more expansive plans of both Democrats and Republicans. And obviously the, and I want to take this piece by piece, Ricky, because there really are some really important details here to go through. So Mm -hmm. let's start with the voucher slash education savings account piece of this. I don't know exactly. Most articles are calling it a voucher, but as I read it, it reads to me like it functions kind of like education savings accounts. But the details here are fascinating to me because we've already talked about how like there's like a dozen plus states that either have ESA bills on the books or have very credible proposals set for passage. And so we've long felt on this show and in our company that this education savings voucher expansion in red states is one of the most, if not the most important issues in education today. And the details in this bill underline why that's the case. In 2023-2024, so next school year, they cap participants in this program to 1.5% of current total public school enrollment in the state and eligible students are basically students in need, students with disabilities, students experience homelessness, foster children, children of active duty military members, students who attend an F-rated school, students enrolling in kindergarten for the first time. So essentially saying this is for the people who the system has not been serving well. The next year that cap goes from 1.5% to 3%. So it doubles. Then Uh, In 2025, 2026, all students are eligible to participate, participate, and there are no caps. So essentially, it allows for the program to double in two years, and then the sky's the limit. It could be as big as the demand lets it be. That I find fascinating because a lot of the rest of this stuff in this plan, a lot of which I like, depends upon funding and funding increases and I am. I have a question, which is when you allow for a bunch of people to, to leave the system, which may or may not happen, I don't think anybody can really predict, then can you fund the rest of the stuff in this bill? Yeah, I'm, and to just put some numbers to that, um, that's 90% of the allotted 
um, funding per student that's being returned to the family to apply elsewhere. And with in the first year, that will be 7,000 students, then 14,000, and then it's it's fair game. I think it'll be interesting to see how widespread the adoption is. I, I don't think any of us are really able to predict that. Um, but I... I mean, even if it is kind of a risk, like I'm, I'm sympathetic to the need to do something really radical here. They actually evoked um, the emergency clause because of how bad their educational system is there in Arkansas. Um, U.S. News and World Report ranked them number 44. So as much as this is like really coming out swinging, I, I think it's, it's, it'll be an interesting and radical kind of experiment in school choice to watch. Yeah, it's it's definitely one in a series of pieces of legislation like this. And so uh, we could spend a lot of time on the ESAs, but we've talked about ESAs a lot on this podcast. Yeah. So we'll just put in the show notes our debates and discussions around ESAs. But let's move on to some other elements of this plan, because I think every piece of this, there's, there's very little in here that is truly unique. But I think the combination of all these things I find really fascinating. So the next thing I want to talk about is the teacher pay provision. So they raised mm -hmm. the state's minimum teacher salary from 36000 to 50000 They removed the state's it's minimum huge. salary. Yeah, that's a big jump. Um, they, remo they removed the state's minimum salary schedule for teachers. They require teachers to be paid at least $2,000 more uh, for the next school year. And they repeal incentives for teacher recruitment in high-priority districts, which I have questions about that. Because also uh, providing for maternity leave too. Yeah, and they have a merit teacher incentive, which I really like, which uh, provides teachers with bonuses up to $10,000 based on merit, which I the devil will be in the details there too. But I think the most expansive, so like noted that this is going to cost money, which we'll come back to. I don't want to just let that derail every part of this discussion. I, I still have questions about where that money is coming from. But what's fascinating here are some of these provisions outside of just strictly teacher pay. So uh, within this bill, they allow superintendents and principals to make employment decisions based on performance and, effect and effectiveness, not seniority and tenure. Superintendents must consult with teachers before hiring uh, a principal. And the law, most importantly, repeals the Teacher Fair Dismissal Act, which is a law that requires school districts to notify teachers of changes in their employment status before May 1st. So essentially making employees closer to at will. So it seems like this is basically weakening uh, sort of uh, labor protections for teachers. Yeah. yeah and, and there's also like pretty radical changes up into the high school level as well. Um, they changed some graduation standards, including um, adding a community service element to um, graduating from high school. One thing that I, my favorite part probably personally of this legislation is that they're um, developing career ready pathways for high school students so that you can kind of do like a built in almost trade school sort of situation where um, like high growth, high pay jobs that don't necessarily require a college degree, you can opt into that, like into a program that would um, help you develop the skills necessary while you're still in high school. I think that's awesome. I think that's hugely important, especially with the trends in higher education right now. Um, I mean, I overall really like a lot of what's in this bill. I always get frustrated by these bills that have like a million different elements and then just one thing taints it and then everything else gets dismissed as a result. Like, yeah. I don't know why we can't pass things in, in smaller order, but I do understand that like when you're number 44 and you're all the, all the way at the bottom and your literacy rates are struggling and you have the pandemic on top of everything that actually doing some bold 
changes here is a, a really important thing. And I would say certainly on the CRT and especially on that there was another clause on um, sexually explicit materials. I would say this is a better, less vague bill on the sexual instruction front mm -hmm. than the Florida one by a long shot. It's talk. It says specifically instruction. There's none of the issues around uh, classroom conversation that we saw in Florida. So I would say this is less of a um, like a vague, scary bill in that sense. But unfortunately, that feels like that has tainted all of the coverage. Yeah, and and I, I'm not sure the coverage is going to matter for Arkansas, but it could matter for other yeah. states. And it's certainly to my fellow Democrats, and maybe I'll write something about this. I have this sense that Democrats aren't telling a story about the K-12 system that's fresh in any way. It sounds just very familiar to me. Raise teacher pay, you know, protect against the overreach of Republicans on certain speech issues and CRT things, et cetera. Like, you just don't get anything too original from Democrats. And I think if you see more Republicans pushing legislation like this, which essentially steals the Democratic talking point around teacher pay, and is like, all right, look, we're going to invest in more teacher pay, uh, but they combine a bunch of other things that actually do require courage. Like... Like, let me name a couple of things I like about this that we've actually talked about in this podcast. Number one is the basic bargain that they're they're drawing with teachers, saying we're going to pay you more. Another thing we didn't mention is they're also going to uh, they increased their uh, federal uh, student loan repayment program. They doubled it, which helps attract more young teachers, right? So they're basically saying we're going to pay you more. We're going to incentivize you more in certain cases to go to low performing districts, even though there's some confusing contradictions in the bill around that, but. In order to, to do that, we're going to weaken some tenure protections and potentially some mm -hmm. labor protections that they have there. And we may empower uh, principals more to manage their schools. I love that. They also have a bunch of stuff which we haven't talked about around uh, investing in tutoring, investing in literacy instruction. They basically borrow the Tennessee, Mississippi stuff that we've talked about around uh, retention, third and fourth grade, basically saying if you can't read then you are retained in those grade levels. But they don't just say they're going to retain kids. They have this tiered system of investing more in the school and in the student if the student is retained, which I think is really smart. And so you got all that kind of stuff, which I really, really like. Uh, but mm -hmm. then, Ricky, I just continue to wonder whether this thing can be funded because all these things are kind of really expensive. And when Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about both the ESA provision of this, the sort of voucher ESA provision of this and the funding, I didn't find her answer satisfactory. With new education freedom accounts, parents will be able to send their kids to whatever school works best, whether it's private, public, parochial, or homeschool. Some have said this defunds public schools. But let me be clear, all of the research shows that the exact opposite is true. Most families end up staying in their local school district, but when parents are empowered to choose, all schools work harder to attract students. Competition breeds excellence. So I agree with her that competition can be helpful here. But I want her to be more honest about the fact that she talks about research. We don't have enough of a research base on these expansive ESA bills to say one thing or another about what 10 years down the line the environment is going to look like for competition. And what I would rather her say is, look, there are going to be trade-offs from this bill. It could lead to certain schools closing, right? It's just a reality. 
that some schools may close and entire districts may be under distress, but that is a price worth paying for this legislation. What I would also have loved her to say is something somewhere, and if you're a person from Arkansas and you know where this information is, it's possible we just didn't find it, something somewhere about how they're going to pay for this bill and implement it. Because when I went to the governor's website, this is what it says. It says, myth, this will cost taxpayers far too much. And then it says, fact, Quote, this bill uses a mixture of existing state funds and federal grants to fund the price tag. In fact, Arkansas is still on track to enact another tax cut. And of course, quality education systems pay for themselves many times over in the long run. Every kid deserves the opportunity for a quality education that sets them up for a lifetime of success, end quote. I'm going to say a big bullshit to <laughs> many things in that paragraph. What federal funds are we talking about? Paying for things many times over, I agree. Like, have an educated workforce, but you have to wait decades for that to pay off. Like, those kids have to grow up. They have to come back to Arkansas, reinvest in the state. This is not specific enough for me. Yeah. I love a lot what's in this bill. I don't think that they're being honest about the fiscal impact of this. I would say, though, to her credit, a lot of her other like she's really come out swinging with a lot of bills uh really early a lot of executive orders and a ton of them are directed towards um cutting down on like bureaucracy and administrative bloat in arkansas um so i maybe there's like a balancing the budget thing obviously you'd want um some more clarity on that but to her credit a lot of the other things that she's doing is about like cutting back on unnecessary government spending in other areas. And if there were one place that I completely agree, you should be diverting that same tax money towards it's educating your kids, especially when you're at number 44. So hopefully um, there's more long-term foresight. I don't, I'm certainly not an expert on the budget of Arkansas, but I I have hope that she's putting the money in the right place. And if you're listening, I really, really want, like if there is an answer here, I'll be excited because I actually would love to see this bill become a reality. So if you know, I know we got listeners in Arkansas, if you know uh, how this is going to work in practice with a tax cut that she's promising, please come. I will invite you on the show. I would love to to hear about it because this is a really important piece of legislation. So in, in many ways, this could go in many directions. This could be an expansive piece of legislation that becomes the model for Republican candidates and really pushes Democrats on their back heels to do more, be more aggressive, tell a better story about our education system. Or it can go by the way of Kansas and Brownback where they defunded a lot of things and somehow mysteriously, like, you know, a state like Kansas wound up having a Democratic governor because they so poorly mismanaged the fiscal situation there. And so I think this can go either way. Let's talk about our gentrifying economy. Joe, I think there, there have been a couple of articles written about this phenomenon of, uh, what's the word we use here? It's called premiumization. Premiumization. Give us the background here. Yeah, so as we're seeing more and more companies are pursuing a strategy known as premiumization to essentially attract wealthier customers to pay more for higher quality products or services. Now, this isn't necessarily... A new concept. Airlines have been charging more for first class seats for decades, but lately it seems like every company is trying to find ways to upsell their most affluent customers. You know, we have social media companies are now offering paid subscriptions for premium services. Movie theaters are splitting seats into different uh, price tiers. Even Krispy Kreme has turned to selling premium specialty donuts. I don't know if any of you seen the $11 donut. 
but I will be getting that. What is in it? What's in an $11 donut? They, apparently there's some Gold? special frosting on it. They actually only sell it at one location. It's at their uh, Times Square location. Okay, so then they're here. This is, I have an issue with this article entirely <laughs> where I feel like this is just a lot of anecdata and we're really going to make a point about how the whole economy is gentrifying and fundamentally changing over the fact that Krispy Kreme is selling a donut in one location. Yeah, well, it's not just Krispy Kreme. We have WD-40, which has introduced these smart straws uh, to get customers to pay more. We have Six Flags, who have they raised their prices um, in order to, quote, elevate guest experiences. There are a few examples that Jason Carrion and Gina Smilik wrote in the New York Times titled, Is the Entire Economy Gentrifying? The example often given here is Disney World, which I have not been to Disney World since I was a little kid, but from from what I understand, if you go to Disney World now, it used to be that we just all waited on the same line. And now you go to Disney World and there are like many tiers of access where you could cut the line, you can cut the people cutting the line, you can cut the people cutting the people cutting the line, you could have a special person who takes you around and you could just sit on the ride and just keep riding it over and over and over again. Um, and that comes as ticket prices generally went up in Disney, something that I know Bob Iger, the returning CEO, has said he wants to roll back. And I think, so I, I, Ricky, I share some of your skepticism that we may be overblowing certain details, but then I think there are, there are a lot of examples in plain sight, some of which are not that new, but to say that, all right, if companies can get away with creating luxury experiences alongside the everyday experiences, they will do it even if it degrades the quality of the experiences for everybody else, which Disney's inevitably does. There are only so many seats on the ride. So if people are allowed to cut the line and then ride it over and over and over again, that means that the, you know, the plumber who saved up money to go to the park and has to wait two hours to go see that, that could be two and a half hours. And they may grow to resent that, which is a risk for Disney. Plumbers are paid pretty well. That's a weird choice of all all jobs, but um, yeah, but they pay, paid eighty thousand okay, dollars. Your Krispy Kreme donut does not get worse because there is an eleven dollar donut in Times Square. Your WD forty does not get worse because somebody has a better straw on their WD forty that they paid more money for. Like this, I just this feels like a lot of anecdata to me. One of the authors, Jason Carrion, said that they realized it after quote just opening their eyes out in the world, mm -hmm. which I would refer everyone to the Bader Meinhof phenomenon, which is when you learn about something and then you start seeing it everywhere, which mm -hmm. happens all the time to me. I mean, what, since when do when, how is this in any way new that corporations will make premium products or find a different way to make money? Like, I just don't see that this is some, sort of groundbreaking phenomenon. And if anything, it's probably a response to the fact that you've never had a period of time with greater consumer options than you do right now, thanks to the advent of online shopping and Amazon. And there's a million different options. You don't just go to the store and have your yeah. smart straw premium WD40. You can get like a million different alternatives on Amazon delivered to your door tomorrow. And these old corporations that used to have a, a basic like stranglehold on your options. Like, yeah, maybe they do need to make a premium option and a better straw to compete with the fact that now anybody can go in Amazon prime, a million different alternatives to WD 40 tomorrow. Like it, this just yeah. feels like a pulling an argument out I, of thin I, air in my so, opinion. So I do think uh, Joe, there's one thing I want you to look up really quickly and we can come back to it, which is what's the average take home pay of a plumber in the United States. Since, since Ricky wants to talk about the plumber, this is the second time I'm talking about plumbers. No, by this the way. Is I had a, a debate but, with Chris like, about I'm only bringing but that then, up because it's a stigmatized 
guy's job, but, but actually but look at we should have more people going lo- to trade love- schools and stuff. I totally agree. No, I'm saying like, I'm defending the plumber here. I want this plumber to be able to take their kid to Disney World and cut the line. So let's see if they can do they it. They probably are. What's the, what's the take-home pay of a plumber in the United States and what's the the elite ticket at Disney World cost? Uh, and let's see, you know, and let's assume our plumber has two children. Uh, and we'll come back to that. According to Faraday, it's the median. The median pay is fifty nine thousand dollars, about sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, so they're taking home plumber. somewhere between thirty and forty thousand. We'll say they take home forty thousand dollars a year. Uh, so we got two kids, uh, and this this VIP ticket, I'm assuming, is going to be a lot of money uh, at Disney World, right? Well, that that can go up into the six figures, though. Plumbers can make six figures in certain places. Well, we'll come back to the Anyways. Disney ticket because Joe's Joe's not Just, quick on the ranging like from four hundred and fifty dollars to nine hundred dollars per hour, depending there you on the season. That plumber ain't affording that VIP ticket. I mean, unless they're making irresponsible financial decisions. And my point here is, Ricky, I agree with you that this could be overblown. And I think let's lean into the places that do it. Let's stipulate that this might not be as widespread a phenomenon as some people are playing it out to be, but maybe it could be. And maybe the CEOs of the major Fortune 500 companies are tuning into the last debate for guidance on whether to do this. And so I wanna speak to them, right? Because they're the people who make these decisions. And what I wanna say to them is, at a certain point, your brand really matters here and the dignity of your customers matters too. And so if you're, forcing people to stay online and watch people cut them that affects your brand and i'm and i'm not like treading new ground this here i'm sure such a specific is. experiential thing like but let me give uh, another uh, example like, then yeah let me give another like wd-40 like what does that have to do with disneyland and people waiting in lines like this just feels like the weirdest argument to well, me you have only completely well, unrelated products there, together well there are certain yeah i agree that there these are different questions for each product now there is a question, though, of how much attention you have, right? Customer service attention, uh, you know, engineering attention, product attention. And so if you create more and more luxury products, like, do you have the bandwidth to also ensure that your more, like, you know, economy offerings are really good? And anybody who's ever been on an airplane knows this. Like, how are you treated in economy in an airplane that has, like, four tiers of business, first class, premium economy, yada, yada. If you're in the back of that plane, you're getting ignored, right? Now, the- Robbie, how would you know? You're sitting in the front. <laughs> well, I know the difference. I've seen both of them. Now, okay, here, here's one that's going to be personal to you, Joe. I'm assuming you're a Yankee fan. I would hope you're in the Bronx. Yep. Yankee Stadium, the Mets and Yankees, they knocked down their stadiums and built stadiums with fewer seats, both of them. They knocked down their stadiums to build stadiums with fewer seats, more luxury boxes, more expensive seats. And for those of us, you know, I used to wait online. When I was a kid, we would wait online outside of Yankee Stadium to get tickets for the World Series, for example. And then we'd use those tickets to go to the right field bleachers. And in some of these places, like there was this, they had to wind up knocking these seats down in order to create like a, you know, some more luxury spaces. But uh, there was this situation where there were sections 201 to 239 of Yankee Stadium in the new stadium. This is like in the bleachers that were partly blocked by walls of the Mohegan Sun Sports Bar. Um, and their their flat screen TVs were blocking the view for fans in the historic bleachers of Yankee Stadium. You know, right field bleachers. We were the bleacher creatures. We were the people who'd come out from Staten Island, which is a long way to go. And we'd go to these games and the games would be really affordable. 
And they, they knock down the old stadium. They never knock down Fenway, for example, but they knock down the old stadium and then they create these luxury boxes that sit empty. Just Google this. You can Google empty front row seats, Yankee Stadium. The whole lower bowl in certain days are sparse while the upper decks are full. And that's there's no question that degrades the experience of the average fan. If you're never going to step foot in that stadium again as a result, then there's the there's your free market response to that. I mean, what I just... I This broad like provocative thought piece thing that just does nothing for me like what does this have to do with wd-40 and how does it a an $11 Krispy Kreme like impact the Krispy Kreme that you buy in the line at CVS like I I just it's just so like let's just sit around and and talk about this when people can't afford like basic necessities like I just don't understand what any of these completely disparate sectors of the economy have to do with each other. But I do think, I, I agree we can compare like with alike, but I do think the uh, the free market is not the end of the discussion. So for instance, like Yankee Stadium, Disney World. Yeah, these are businesses, but they're also experiences, they're rites of passage for people in the United States. Like the Yankees to us were not a commercial enterprise growing up. They were a part of our culture. And so when you start to to sell out to institutions like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, who, you know, you're catering to them to build these luxury boxes at the expense of, yes, the plumber from Staten Island, then to me that, yeah, there's a free market problem with that. I'm voting with my pocketbook. I'm not powerful enough to yeah. bring you know the Yankees to to their knees. All I'm saying is, I think it's just morally wrong, and it's degrading to people yeah. who you know no, count on your services. I'm not disagreeing with you. I think that this, the thing that's just getting under my skin with this article is, this would have been a way better written thing if it was like about how experiences are gentrifying, and it's yeah. about like airplanes, and it's about Disneyland. But we need to make these big, provocative, sweeping claims to get people like us to talk about things on podcasts. Yeah. But like, it's just. It, like this is not a productive conversation to be having because these are completely separate things. And if you actually like were to boil it down, the fact that WD 40 has a smart straw is not oppressing anyone. And it's probably yeah, the result of the I'm fact not, that there's been unprecedented that, consumer choice in recent history, because you can buy whatever WD 40 off brand, whatever from any place in the whole freaking world and have it on your doorstep tomorrow. Like right. it's just such a, I don't like this, sweeping thought piece thing. This is where, this is where these big media legacy media institutions lose the everyday normal American. Who's just more worried about like their day-to-day -day right. spending than these provocative questions about gentrification. Yeah. Well, okay. Speaking of which you know, podcasts are doing this too. So it'd be like, if you want the smartless episode a week early, you pay extra or waking up with Sam Harris, et cetera. So with that in mind, guys, I have an announcement to make about lost debate. We're going to do loss debate premiumization which trademark. So uh, from now on, if you want the third segment, you got to pay $5.99 a month. Uh, for $14.99, you can get the video. Uh, for $99.99, you get to pick a segment a month. And for $100,000, you get to rename the show. For $250,000, you get to sit in on recordings with me in Costa Rica. Uh, so listen, send me a message, everybody. If you want to sign up for premiumization, we don't have a, a backbone for this because I'm not sure many of you are going to sign up for that, but you could just basically email Joe. Joe, you want to give your personal email address out so people can email you to set this up in your Venmo? <laughs> I know. I think I'd rather not at the moment. Okay. If that's okay. All right. Well, tweet at Robbie, me. Robbie, tweet at I me. heard that they're it. making a premium Ozempic. Oh, great. Ozempic. Uh, 
the, oh, God. The, the, the producers are going to get mad at <laughs> me for this. Why'd you say that, Ricky? The, the, the producers are going to get mad at me for this. Why'd you bring it up? But this is a I good segue. This is a good segue to, segue to voicemails. I think we've we've exhausted gentrification. Good debate, guys, by the way, today. We, you know, we're, we often talk about how that we don't really debate. That triggered me more than I thought it would. Uh, it really Love did. it. Well, we, we also debated, uh, what did we debate earlier? We debated uh, ChatGBT and Archie. This is a, more of a debate-heavy lost debate episode. Love it. Okay. Ozempic, right? I know the audience loves when I talk about Ozempic. Shout out to our, our folks sending in voicemails. Uh, there actually was a development on this that I think is really important to mention. So Peter Atia, the doctor that we had mentioned on that segment. So Ozempic is this weight loss drug that we covered on the show. He came out with an episode uh, this week that I think really adds a lot to the debate around the future of that drug, essentially where he talked about data internal to his practice, which is some of the richest data that I've seen. And he also unpacked some recent studies that came out essentially saying something that clarifies something we said on the show, which is when we talked about Ozempic on the show, we talked about the fact that the data coming out was that people were losing weight uh, and we were speculating on, do they gain it afterwards, gain it back? And are they losing the healthy kind of weight? And actually what Atiyah came in and said was, number one, both from external data and data within his practice, people are losing both the healthy and unhealthy weight at the same amount, which he said is really bad data, right? You essentially want people to lose lean mass uh, three to one to, um, they basically want to lose, uh, sorry, uh, lean mass one to three. So for every pound of lean mass you lose, you want three pounds to be lost of non-lean mass. So essentially fat. So he's basically saying this is not great data for Ozempic. And he also has data basically saying that not only do you gain the weight back after you go off of it, but there's reason to believe you may even gain more weight. Uh, they don't have men enough years of data yet, but he has reason to think that the trends, if they, if they, if you allow them to play out, could mean that people gain more than the weight that they lost in Ozempic. And he says he still recommends it for people in his practice who have very significant pre-diabetes risk, but that he's not very bullish on this for uh, for people who are not dealing with significant issues with weight or diabetes. And so that I think that's a really important clarification to that. Now I'm not sure that the masses are going to listen to him on this. But I think that was one of the most important pieces of reporting on that. So thanks for teeing up Ozempic. Mm -hmm. Shall we go to our voicemails? Sure. <laughs> Did I wear you out on our Ozempic? Uh-huh. Old, old favorite of mine. Um, I have a few friends who are not going to be uh, happy with those findings. Do you really have friends well, using Robbie Ozempic? Robbie was Jeff? ready to give it to freaking 12-year-olds mm -hmm. the last I time was we did this segment. So. <laughs> I was not. That I, was never I my shared position. The voice, that I, was never I, right. I shared the voicemail sender's concerns about your choices on that Look. front. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. All right. Let's hear from Chloe in Florida. Hi, Ricky and Ravi. This is Chloe from Florida. I'm a professor here at a state school, and I'm calling to respond to your conversation about college cancellation fears because it is my life. Um, Ravi, you were wondering about aloud about whether this pressure is coming from the left or right, and I would say from Florida at a state school, it's definitely coming from both sides. From the far right, you've got DeSantis and his anti-CRT and LGBT legislation. And then from the left, from within, we've got these extreme DEI policies and other very, very young hyper-online faculty um, who are pushing things 
we had an entire faculty meeting debate about whether being on time to class was a feature of white supremacy. Um, and I, in my opinion, some of this stuff is getting a little bit out of hand. Um, I really agreed with some of the solutions that y'all were proposing. Um, I like the heterodox academies sort of teaching students to think from the other side and to steel man and opposite argument. I've actually had some really good luck in my classes. I teach in the theater department. Um, having students use the phrase, one might argue, rather than um, letting it get really super personalized in the classroom because that's where things tend to go wrong. And then finally, I would really say we've got to encourage faculty to read the legislation. Um, there's a lot of fear-mongering being done by the media as well as um, by the, our unions sort of making us feel like we have no power, and this is really worsening the chilling effect that you were talking about. And I really think if some people would just actually sit down with some of, for example, DeSantis' legislation, they will find that it's actually rather toothless, and there's um, ways to be strategic in how we're teaching in the classroom to really empower ourselves. So thank you all so much. It was really refreshing to hear some coverage about this that wasn't anti-professor. It was actually very pro-education, which is not surprising coming from you, Ravi, especially, um, and Ricky also with your work doing um, stuff with FIRE. So thank you all so much. This is a really interesting perspective, and I completely agree with her that particularly in Florida, you have it coming from both sides politically right now. Um, I think there's it's a huge relief to me to hear that um, the anti-CRT stuff as applied to higher education has been uh, pretty much nullified in court recently. So in terms of the actual legal repercussions there, that's um, that seems to be a thing of the past but like even like the turning point usa professor watch list stuff and like like going after professors who are too woke or this or that like i mean there's certainly an issue on on both sides and, and florida is the uh kind of pinnacle of that so i appreciate her her vantage point here and i also like the one might argue thing that's a that's a clever way to get kids to actually potentially serve as the devil's advocate and not be demonized forever well, we'll leave it at that. Chloe, thanks for the voicemail. Uh, I agree with everything Chloe said. I appreciate her perspective. And, totally. and I appreciate Me the too. compliments, really, above above all. Just thank you for the compliments, <laughs> Chloe. That gives me an extra pep in my step today. Speaking of compliments... Maybe we should, we should ask for some more Ozempic voicemails. To you can't keep out. bringing it... This is a... You can't keep bringing... That's... Okay. You're, it's like you're like a fisher... You're like a fisherman with your with your lure. Because it's you're your like, most oh, toxic trait. You guys... So you, you, you make fun of me for talking die. about it. Yeah, you bring it up. It's like, you know, it's like catnip for me. I can't help it. It's your most well, toxic trait. Speaking of... I don't take it anymore. Uh, the uh, we speaking of compliments, get out there. We're not gonna if, if you leave enough positive voicemails, we will not implement our premium plan. Okay, but if if I don't if I a week from now I don't go on there and see some really positive five star ratings on our shows, then I'm gonna have to implement our premium plan. Okay, and that means the name of the show could change. That means one less segment. Guys, don't make me do it. So get out there, write those reviews wherever you get your podcast. Really appreciate it, everybody. We'll be right back here on Thursday. Thank you. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 